to me, color is everything. I don't know. Yeah. That's why I have so many paints. Right. Because <laughs> I have to have a lot of color at all times. It sort of cheers me up. And I think being brought up in Manhattan and, and what, as I remember it, a rather gray place is like I've just sort of always craved color. Welcome to episode 10 of Magic Praxis. In this episode, we visit the studio of painter Susan B. I'm Clarity Haynes, and this is Kate Hawes. Susan B. is well known for her bright, quirky, pattern-rich paintings. She has been an artist and feminist activist since the 1970s, when as a young graduate student, she was mentored by Nancy Spiro and other founders of AIR Gallery, the first women's cooperative gallery in the United States. She was the co-editor with Mira Shore of Meaning, a journal of contemporary art issues from 1986 until its final online version in 2016. We discussed Bee's New York City childhood in an artist family of Jewish immigrants, her marriage to the poet Charles Bernstein, and the challenges of being a woman artist. We visited Susan in her home and studio in Cobble Hill, Brooklyn. Thanks for having us. Oh, well, thanks for coming. I'm really happy to have you in my studio. Actually, I hardly ever do any interviews in my studio. It's usually like in a radio place or on email. So it's really nice to do something in the studio with some of the things I'm working on now. So I've been working a lot on um, film stills based on this movie Pickpocket by Robert Bresson from 1959, which is a black and white movie. And in it, the woman visits the pickpocket in jail. And so I got really intrigued by the various parts of her visiting him. I mean, Bresson is a great filmmaker. And so he, point, he points his camera and he has it from her point of view, from his point of view, and then sometimes just the pickpocket himself in jail. But then I use all of these black and white stills as a jumping off point to do whatever I want, basically. So my latest one is very, um, I just got into this sort of symbolism. A lot of my stuff sort of experimental to me. I don't even know how it's going to turn out at all. Like, I really don't know. I just sort of start with an idea, and then it's really procedural. It's like, oh, well, I think I'll put a question mark in the, in right. the jail cell with him. <laughs> um, and then it also is using different types of textures and different ways of painting the figure. But I'm sort of interested in a rather flat, cartoony approach to the figure, so they're not supposed to be very realistic. But they have a feeling to them, even though they're sort of flat and somewhat cartoon-like. I think there's a feeling to everything that I do. Like an emotion. Yeah, I I want the work to be emotional. And actually, somebody wrote me after they'd been to my show at AIR and said that they cried through the whole show. They thought the couples were so sad. And (laughs) I didn't really think that was a particularly sad show. But I thought it was really interesting that she thought that. I mean, I'm happy to stir, like emotions are also, I think there's a sense of humor to the work. I'm really interested in emotion in painting, you know, and I love Marston Hartley and people like Florine Stedheimer and really eccentric painters, like people who kind of go far out. 
And that's really where my interest is. And then I also use film stills from like comedies as well as from tragedies. And also I've been using, these are just sort of jumping off points. I use like Marston Hartley. I have um, used Monk and Matisse. So a lot of this stuff is, I just get inspired by an image and then I just go from there. But then the important part for me is in the painting like in the process, like over a period of weeks, I might really change what I'm thinking about the image or what I'm thinking about. And I also try to think about what the characters are thinking about. In Dark Matter, the painting that was in the show at AIR, it's two people looking into the distance and what are they thinking? And then is there a future like good or bad? The black stripes are sort of like blocking out bits of their future. Interesting. So I have these thoughts. So it's sort of like meditation on images, but it's very abstract at the same time. Like I feel that painting is fairly abstract. I painted the entire scene as it was in The Monk. And then I basically went over it and kind of blacked it out. So the scene is underneath. I've been doing a lot of stuff with this idea of Rückenfigur, which is a German term for German romantic painting where people are looking into the landscape Mm -hmm. and you see their backs and it's because they're meditating on what's in front of them. That kind of gives a weird depth of feel to the paintings because you wonder, what are they looking at? I got really intrigued by it because I was in Germany and I was looking at a lot of Caspar David Friedrich romantic paintings. And there's like usually one figure, usually a man, and he's looking into the landscape. So I did a few where I changed the figure to a woman, but used his basic composition. And I got really interested in the idea of if you're doing figurative work, like what is the position of the figure and what are they thinking? And a lot of couples, like, how are they interacting? So that's why I started doing a lot of the couples. And yet, it's also just about painting. Yeah. You know? So I, I don't want to abandon the painting part of it, you know. Right. To me, that's really important. Because um, I was an abstract painter for a while. <laughs> okay. And so when I put the figures back in, it was started to mean something different. Um, when did you start putting the figures back in? I've gone back and forth, actually. Okay. And then I was doing photograms, and I was doing artist books, and I had a lot of input from poets. I mean, I've done a lot of different things over the period of time of 40 years, I would say, or also some, you know, as a child, I did a lot of stuff. Because uh, my parents were artists, I went to openings, I met a lot of artists. I, I would go to the studio, my s- mother would stick me in the corner while she was oil painting, and she'd like give me a little piece of paper, <laughs> to, like oil paint. The smell of oil paint is like, you know, motherhood or something. Wow. So, you know, I was brought up, and then I took classes at like the Museum of Modern Art as a child. So, and I saw so much work because we were dragged to every single museum and every opening, like on 10th Street, every week, you know. I mean, I didn't always like that. <laughs> yeah, it was like, <laughs> it was like it was I've got an allergy to the whole Right, Because right. <laughs> I was so immersed in art, yeah. and my father also was a printmaker, so I would go with him to Pratt Graphics. He would just, like, give me a little etching plate to work on, like, wow. and put me in the corner. <laughs> it's 
like, go, go do that. Oh so, you know, because it's like meaning, babysitting. <laughs> without meaning to, they were raising an artist. I know. And then she says, I don't know why you want to be an artist. It's like, <laughs> you dragged me to like every museum, but every like museum. And, you know, we went to Mexico and I saw as a child also, we drove from New York to Mexico and I was very influenced by the colors, which I just totally loved yeah. and the Mexican art. That makes yeah. sense because your colors are. Pretty I know my colors wild. are very hot, and because yeah. as a child I just like saw these um, markets in Mexico and these flowers, and it was so much more colorful. Because in those days, like New York was very gray. Yeah, mm. these are not New York. <laughs> yeah. No, I had a very. Um, I felt like I started to get really into these colors as a child in Mexico. But also I was surrounded by these abstract expressionist painters mm -hmm. who were very, like my mother was a very colorful painter. Was she an abstract painter? She went on and on. She was like me. She went from back abstraction and back and forth between abstraction and figuration. And she came from Berlin. So I kind of, she had kind of absorbed a lot of German expressionism. So it kind of went... Uh -huh. through her bloodstream to me. Okay, right. <laughs> you know, somehow the whole German expressionist thing that kind of came from my parents filtered down, yeah. you know. And so that's why, in a way, I feel like really close to that kind of work. I feel like I see that in your landscapes. Yeah, they're the very... The way you paint clouds and skies and the water, the trees. Right. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because um, Hareg of um, Hareg Allergic came to my show and he saw that the Matisse painting, which is called Color Storm, which is up. And he said, you know, that it was very unusual for somebody to make a Matisse version that is actually more colorful than the original <laughs> Matisse, which is Great true point. because actually the original Matisse that I was using as my, as something that I was playing off of is actually quite gray. Wow. It's actually a very gray Matisse. And he, he knew the painting and he just said, oh, yours is so much more colorful, which is actually true. That and that sort of, he thought it was a bizarre thing because right. usually when somebody does a version of a Matisse, they tend to like make it more abstract or less colorful. Uh -huh. To me, color is everything. I don't yeah. know. That's why I have so many paints. Right. Because <laughs> I have to have a lot of color at all times. It sort of cheers me up. And I think being brought up in Manhattan and, and as I remember it, a rather gray place, you know, yeah. is, is like I've just sort of always craved yeah. color. Um, but so, the art that you were surrounded by probably was very colorful. Yeah, my parents had a lot of art up. There was color everywhere. And I guess that was my association with art was that there was color and there was emotion. I remember a talk that you gave at AIR with, I guess it was the talk with Fang Bui recently for your show, and you were saying, well, the reason why the figures are kind of, their flesh is not detailed and it's sort of flat is because it's a respite from the rest of the painting, which is so rich and textured and bright. And, and compositionally, that does make sense. It's the only place, really, <laughs> sometimes, where there is sort of not some kind of pattern. Right. I think it's true. And I do have a tendency to pattern. I think I, if I was critiquing myself, I think I, I'm like overly patterned. I can't really rein myself in. And like, you know, in graduate school, I could never repeat myself. And that's really what they wanted. Right. Like they kept saying, you just need to do minor variations on the same thing. But I would just like make these leaps. It's hard for me to, um, to like conform to some kind of ideal of what, you know, what I in graduate school anyway, because I was with minimalists, 
oh. which is ironic. Wow. Um, <laughs> I just could not. I just really had trouble dealing with the whole minimalist ethos because it totally went against everything that I seemed to be standing for, which was just like improvisation yeah. and kind of like making leaps of faith and just imagery that came to me and being very dreamy and not... I understood minimalism. Like, I read all the texts, and I studied with Roz Krauss and Robert Morris, and these were very serious people, especially in that time period. They were very young, you know? And I was very young, and it was really hard. I mean, I learned a lot, I think. Was there a pressure to be yeah, you a were, minimalist? Like, yes, yeah. oh, totally. Okay. Like, they really hated my work because there was so much color in it. I really, right. like, didn't want color. Wow. So, you know, I just painted in two colors, and I did grid work, and I... And then I did a lot of photography, but actually not through them. The photography I just did on my own, but to, some way to get away from this, what they were insisting on because I wasn't very good at following the rules, you know. But I tried, and I really did yeah. make a, an effort to... And it, it was maybe it was a good thing. Only now, like 40 years later, could I even think <laughs> that. <right? laughs> At the time, I was, like, horrified, and I felt like I was being stifled, you know, right. because I was not doing what I wanted to right. do, which right. is, like, abstract stain paintings, like you know, Helen Frankenthal or something. Yeah. That's what I came in with. Okay. And what I left with was, you know, photograms and, you know, grid work with two colors, blue and white. <laughs> you know, two years of blue and white. Like when I heard you speak with Kat Griefen at your show in 2014 at AIR, you were talking about, because that was a show of your early 80s right. paintings, that which was were amazing. But how you couldn't get those paintings shown in Well, the that 80s. was the first time they were shown. Wow. I mean, that was... So I did those paintings in 82 and 83, and it took till 2014 to get them shown. Yeah. And it's really only because I showed them myself that they right. got shown. In other words, because AIR is a space where I can do what I want. Right. Um, like right. Nobody really tells me what to do, although Kat really helped me with that show. Yeah. So how I got involved with AIR is that in it started in 1972 as the first women's gallery co-op. And the reason it started was that women couldn't get shown in New York. And so two women started it, Barbara Zucker and another woman, and they looked at a lot of people's work to try to put together 20 artists to make a gallery of women because women were not being shown. And um, it was a very radical concept. It was sort of at the time of, you know, the feminist revolution. And so they were really pioneers, you know. And But it was cheap to get a space. So they got a space in Soho. They found 20 women that were willing to share the expense. You know, everybody had to put money and work in. And so that's how it started. Like a co-op. It was a co-op. It still is a co-op. We have meetings. I've had monthly meetings for 21 years. And that's a long time to be at a co-op. And, um, you know, it's a really, it's a cooperative situation. We choose the other artists. And it's amazing that it's still around because yeah. we've gotten from the beginning, kicked out of space after space after space. Yeah. You know, the gallery has been in, I think, about six different locations, starting in Soho. So when I was in graduate school in 1975 to 77 at Hunter, 
I met this woman, Joan Snitzer, who was in my class, and she happened to be the director of AIR. And she became a really good friend of mine. So she said, oh, you should come to meetings. You should come to, they had these monthly talk series that Nancy Spiro ran. And so I started to go to those and they were like amazing. You know, all these people were talking, even people like my teacher, like Rosalind Krauss about how she hated feminism, but people were talking, you know, and they'd come and every, all the women would sit, young girls, women would sit on the floor and we'd listen to these art world people talk about feminism and politics and art. And it was just like such a learning experience, much more important, I think, than what I did in graduate school. Like this was yeah. really where the learning happened. You know? <laughs> that was in graduate school. Well, but it was in graduate school. And right. really it was because I was in graduate school that I met all these people. Right. And so it was really great for me. And then I became an editor of Women Artists News. I was already involved with feminism because I had gone to Barnard, which is an all-women's college. And I was like in the first feminist seminars my freshman orientation instructor was Kate Mellett. Wow. I'll give you a little idea of how radical things were. Wow! So it was really, I had a very strong feminist um, education by going to Barnard. And, and it was like the height of the women's movement starting and the gay rights and Black Panthers. And, you know, it was wild. I never went to class. I, mean, <laughs> like, I just like was, I was always on a march. That was my education. And so I was really ripe for feminism, also because my mother was a painter. And so then I became very involved and as a younger artist. And I got into little group shows at AIR and Nancy became sort of a friend of mine. So I got to know these women and they were really cool women, I mean, and really strong Anna Mangetta, you know, all these women, I heard them speak, Mary Beth Edelson, they would give talks, they would have things at their lofts that I would go to. I mean, I don't think they knew who I was, but I knew who <laughs> right. they were. Wow. So it was, um, I would say, you know, that was a very heady period for me. I started to get yeah. really interested in how to bring feminism into the paintings more. So I did a lot of women fighting because there was a lot of fights between the different factions in the feminist movement. It was not a peaceful movement. (laughs) And I wanted to show how women interacted with each other in a loving way, but also in a fierce way. You know, I didn't want it to just be, you know, I found the women artist movement very divisive and divided, and there were a lot of arguments, and people didn't get along with each other. Apparently, all the AIR stuff was like fighting, you know, they would wow. scream at each other. I wasn't part of that part of it, but it was like that actually, even when I joined. I joined in 96. But at that point, 96, there was like a different group of people. It wasn't the original people, most of the original people left the original artists right. like Haradina Pindell and mm-hmm. Anna. Anna died in 85, I guess. And But I had met all of these people. Right. So they were a very big influence on me. I would say it was a very interesting period. How do you look at that period in relation to today? Well, I mean, it's really different because women are in the museums. I mean, at that time, there were no women. You couldn't find a woman artist in a museum. The guerrilla girls that I knew, all those people, started in 85. 
So there were no women anywhere, and most of the galleries didn't have any women. Wow. So it's really much, much better. Yeah. It's much better, but it's not parody, and we don't right. get the same amount for our paintings, mm-hmm. and we don't get into the same collections, and we don't command the same prices. There was an issue of the Brooklyn Rail, and I wrote a piece for that um, Cara Rooney edited, and she asked this very question. So I wrote a long piece about that. Mm. I mean, I think we're still in a, you know, we're still not at 50% of anything, especially not in terms of sales and prices and gallery representation and museum shows, you know, all the things that count in a way. But it's so much better than it was when I was in, like, in the 70s. Yeah. It's so much better. I mean, Thanks to what all of you guys did. I mean, yeah, it wasn't we did just, work really hard. It wasn't just magic, right? <laughs> no, yeah. it was not magic at all. It was really hard work. And I, I remember seeing those women, and they were very, to me, as a young artist, they seemed really bitter and angry. Mm-hmm. And I was like, why are they so bitter and angry? <laughs> um, and now I know. <laughs> like, you turn into a real bitch after a while in this business. I just feel like I've been through the ringer, yeah, and yeah. and it's probably best not to be a nice person. Yeah, yeah. I feel I am, but I understand why those women who seem, right. like, impossible to us, like Mira and I were, like, always, like, these women are really mean. <laughs> like, yeah. what made them so mean? <laughs> You know, now I know why right. they became the embittered and difficult, mm-hmm. you know, kind of hostile, angry women. You know, it was a different generation. And so, like, a lot of times people ask me, they think I was an original member right. of AIR, which would have to mean that I was at least like 80 or 90. But right. you know, no. I don't think they make any differentiation. They don't have a sense that 40 years is a long the, time. Right. right. And that the women that, you know, that are still around even from that. Um, generation like Barbara Zucker or mm-hmm. Howard Dina Pendel, they're really old. I mean, mm-hmm. they're not youngsters. Yeah. So when I heard you give the uh, talk with Kat Griefen um, in 2014, you had just received the Guggenheim yeah. after applying for it, what, 30 times? And the show, the, the, pa- the show had paintings in it that are just, it was called Doomed to Win, the mm-hmm. show. And there's paintings, portrait of the artist as a young pig, woman artist painting. <laughs> These are iconic paintings that have to do with the struggle, basically, of of being a woman and an artist. And I'm amazed that you did not get those paintings shown in the 80s and that it took that long. I mean, I'm wondering how it feels to you. You're finally getting your your due? Well, it's complicated because I never could show those paintings. I had so many dealers over and I almost had a show at White Columns, but then he like said no. Mm -hmm. And I got pregnant, and then nobody would show me, you know. It was really a terrible struggle, and I thought the paintings were really good. A lot of people came over and they said, these paintings are really good. Somebody should show them. But nobody would show them. Wow. Nobody would show them. Wow. And I didn't have my first gallery solo show till I was 40 in 1992. (laughs) That's how long it took, you know, and I've been painting for years and years and years. And you already, I mean, you were part of the art world as a kid. It's not like you were, No, I know. you know. But it took me that long, and I really had to, it was at this woman's gallery, Virginia Lust. She had her own gallery, and I had her come over to my studio, and a male painter put me forward to her, Arakawa. He, he, he and, and his wife, Madeline Ginz, who are these very far out people, made a dinner. They introduced me to her. They said, you should show her. 
Wow. That's what it took. Wow. And it was his word because he was a pretty famous artist right then. They listened to him and she did show me. It was very important to me to have that show, like to be public because yeah. otherwise you're just working in your studio and nobody ever sees your work. Right. You know, so I, it was really important to me and it was a woman dealer who did put me forward. It was really interesting reading about how when you and Mira Shore started Meaning, it was to create a critical space for artist voices and for writing outside of the kind of commercially compromised large magazines at the time. It was it such was, an amazing thing that you did. It was an amazing thing. Yeah. <laughs> and we had to pay for it ourselves. So. Right. And we did all the work ourselves. And we really never, we got a few grants, but basically mm-hmm. it was our labor and love and whatever. Yeah. I had already been involved with my husband's magazine, Language, and I'd worked as a graphic designer, as an editor. So it all came kind of naturally to me. Mira was really more interested in the writing aspect, and um, I was really interested in building a community. And the feminist publications, from my point of view, were not critical enough. (laughs) And I really wanted something that included men also. And Mm -hmm. I just wanted a broader amount of voices. like. But I just thought, well, we need to reach out. Yeah. Like, I want to have a feminist publication that's going to have men in it and will have a broader audience Mm -hmm. and will be taken more seriously. And also, Mira had this piece she couldn't get published about David Sally that Mm -hmm. was very critical. And nobody, like, got turned down by Art Forum, October. Every place she sent it to, she has all the letters. I just said, oh, well, we'll just publish it ourselves. You know, our our studios were near each other in Tribeca, and we were friends from childhood, and I... I just thought, well, what the hell? I'll publish this thing. Yeah. Nobody will yeah. publish it. I, we can publish it ourselves. What are we waiting for? Like, who's exactly? Waiting? Right. You know, what? What are we waiting for? Like October? They're never going to publish you. Right. So, which is true, they never did. But um, so we just did it. You know, we had it printed like in Soho at Soho Press, and we schlepped it all over the place, put it in bookstores. Then we took the stuff to the post office in a big bag, and we sent it to everybody we knew. And people, like, really liked it. And we went on for 30 years. Yeah. But we've really finished. Oh. I, I felt like we needed to finish. I thought that your, your last issue <laughs> online, in, online, online was in 2016, right after the election. And it was all about resistance, which is kind of what it's always been about. It but has. It spanned so many different social circumstances and political yeah. environments, you know. No, it has always been about resistance, and it's always been like an an alternative to the larger art world. We try to include a lot of people that, it's amazing, I mean, somebody was looking at the book, we did a book for Duke, and they were saying, how did you get like William Popel and Uh all these people that are so famous now, Leon Golub, everybody, you know, wrote for us, Lawrence Wiener. We just asked them, you know. It wasn't like a hard thing. I got, you know, Elizabeth Murray. I got Pat Steer. I got whoever, Miriam Shapiro. I just asked everybody I knew, like anybody I ran into could be in an issue. Mm -hmm. We didn't really edit the forum sections, like the motherhood forum, which turned out to be very influential. But we, whatever somebody sent us, we published. Okay. We did not, like, we never censored any of the forums that we've ever done. 
We've never ever censored any of that. Have you edited people's work? Oh, of course I oh, edited. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> a lot of it was like you've changed it, right? Because right, yeah, right. no, you were the editor. I was yeah. the editor. No, we always edited really heavily, actually, okay. but not so much in the forums where we'd ask a question. Some of the questions were like very strange. They were like, "What is meaning in the art world?" Or so right. they were sometimes really philosophical yeah. questions. And you never knew what people would write. And sometimes they write very poetic things. Yeah. We'll return to our conversation with Susan B. in a moment. You're listening to Magic Praxis, a podcast in which artists talk to artists in their studios. We appreciate your listening. And if you like what you hear, we hope you will share us with your friends and rate and review us on iTunes so we can continue to grow our audience. And now, back to our studio visit. Um, you're married to Charles Bernstein, who's sort of a prominent member of this school of poetry. I was interested in maybe how the aesthetic and ethos of the language poets, since it's like part of your social milieu and your you know, life, do you feel like it has any connection to your paintings? Yes, I mean, it, first of all, I've done um, 16 artist books, and I've done a lot of collaborations with poets, and I've done a lot of book covers. I was the designer of a lot of poetry mm-hmm, books, mm-hmm. and it's been, like, just great. I mean, to me, it's, like, the best thing that I stumbled into, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know, because yeah. I didn't grow up with poets, but yeah. and I happened to, you know, have this boyfriend in high school who turned into a poet. <laughs> um, and then all of a sudden I was like thrown into this world of poetry and I just loved it because they're non-commercial, you know? Right. It really doesn't make you any money to be a poet. Right. You have to right. teach. They all have to work at other things. And I just took that as my ethos, you yeah. know? I worked yeah. as an editor. Right. I worked as a graphic designer. I saw how they lived and how they yeah. had a community and they'd all go to each other's readings and have parties together and have fights. And <laughs> and I met, you know, people like Adrienne Rich who bought my work and then she put my work on her cover of one of her books. Wow. So, I mean, all these people were like super important wow. to me. Wow. It really was very important to see how the how the poets could operate in this non-commercial realm right. yeah. and how they put their poems together. You know, it's something that made me happy. (laughs) I think I see in your paintings, like, the way you draw from lots of different places. Right. And I feel like the poets do that. Well, the poets that I was involved with in the language group are particularly known for, um, they would take lines from different types, mm-hmm. commercial things, yeah, non-commercial. Yeah, like take things out of the, yeah. their context, their normal context, right. and juxtapose them with something right. else. So the language group and the New York School, um, which I also knew the people, you know, Ann Waldman. Earlier. Right, but they, Joe Brainerd and Ann Waldman, people that I John knew. John Ashbury. John Ashbury and Louderback were all people that I knew yeah. and I would see. And so those people were very, had a very collage Mm-hmm. mentality. Right. Mm-hmm. I did a lot. I mean, I do a lot of collages. My my little drawings are yeah. all really collages. Yeah. And in some ways, the paintings are all collages. I'm, I'm, right. taking, I'm taking things from right. different places. Yeah. The idea of collage and juxtaposition and putting two things together or three things or four things or five things, like in one painting, it right. could be like many it's different like, textures. Yeah, like you'll see a pattern kind of pushed up against another pattern in a painting that most people would say that 
that violates some kind of rule or something. But it's so wonderful. And you'll see something in the background through a window. So it's like there are these like different vistas within a, a vista. Or even symbols. You use a lot of symbols. Yeah, I'm like sim- a little symbol the crazy. Eye, the heart, <laughs> the snake. They're all there. I mean, I like the symbolists a lot. I mean, also like to borrow from a lot of different periods. And I think I learned a lot of that from looking at the poets mm-hmm. and how they would collage in different yeah. lines from different texts, you know, advertising. They would take yeah. stuff from advertising. Mm-hmm. They would take things. And, but they would end up with a piece that had an emotional coherence right. to it. Even John Ashbery at his most radical. And you end up with a an image or a feeling or something. I, I, I'm interested in that somebody should be left with something from a painting. And a lot yeah. of times when people buy the paintings or they live with the paintings, they always say, oh, and I keep seeing different things in it. And I really find that very gratifying because yeah. I don't feel like a painting is just means one thing. And right. over time, right. you might see something else in a painting. I mean, I see that now when I go back to see like the Florine Stettheimers at the Jewish Museum, which I had seen in the early 80s. And we were also one of the few places that published anything about Kusama, Florine Stettheimer, mm. Nancy Spiro, wow. Alison Knowles, the Flux, any women involved with Fluxes, Carol H. Neiman, whereas somebody we supported. Nobody was writing about these people. Nobody was interviewing wow. these people. We have all the first interviews. Wow. And now they're all, you know, yeah. they've become quite famous. Yeah. I mean, Carol, Nayoi Kusama the most expensive I know, but artist? she was, nobody, you hadn't, nobody had heard of her when wow. we published this piece about her. Wow. She, there were no shows. Nobody had heard of her. She'd been disappeared, you wow. know. And Women of Fluxus, gone, you know. Wow. So I feel like very gratified in the way that these people are now famous. <laughs> Carolee, who we like, meaning we did an interview with her in one of the meetings and nobody had heard of her. And she threw a party for the magazine and I met a lot of people yeah. at her loft. Oh, and I learned a lot from how she operated because she didn't have any commercial value as an artist. But she had the poets and the filmmakers and the dancers and the musicians who really supported her. And there was a community of people who were not really yeah. part of the commercial art world. But all along were the people that kept these types of people going. Right. Or the Fluxus people who also, you know, later became famous, but nobody cared. I mean, we would go to the Fluxus things, five people were there. It was wow. always the same five people, too. <laughs> so everybody knew, we knew all the Fluxus people because nobody ever went to anything they did, oh you know? So it was like, um, it was very interesting to meet these people at that time when they're very under, I mean, yeah. to say underappreciated, like nobody would buy their work. Wow. Nobody would show their work. She couldn't even get a teaching job, Carolee. Wow. Because she was, because she took her clothes off. Nobody wanted to hire oh, her. Oh my God. <laughs> and then the feminists were against her because she was so beautiful. She was really, really tough. And I was very intrigued by how these people continued on, you know, that I've seen them mostly near death, but suddenly famous at age whatever. <laughs> mm-hmm. But, um, you know, they somehow managed to continue. Yeah. How, what, do you, what did that look like to you? Like- <laughs> well, it's very odd. I mean, she, Carolee just got the golden lion, and I've known mm-hmm. her since the 70s. I mean, I'm thrilled, but she's very fragile now, and right. her, she's, her health is really bad. I mean, I just think what it would have meant to her 
in the 70s to right. have recognition, to have a gallery, to have wow. people who supported her. Finally, you know, like when Nancy got into Guerlain read a little long, she could hardly walk, you know. Right, right, <laughs> or Howard right. Dino, she's in her wheelchair. Right, and Emma yeah. Amos, who can't, you know, has... So Vermeer and I often talk about the fact that you have to be close to death as right. an artist to get anywhere, <laughs> or better, even dead. Um, right. Right. You know, and even dead oh, right. doesn't like Maria Lasnik had that amazing show at PS1, uh, right. and, and she, she died while it was up. No, this happens all the yeah. time. You know, my mother died at age 60. If she had lived to now, she would be thrilled that somebody right. was interested right. in her work. Right. But, and she had 10 solo shows while she was alive, but wow. they were all right. at co-op galleries. And I mean, discrimination is so real. It's so material. It's so, it's such a real thing. And people don't really appreciate how real it is yeah. in these women's lives, like what their lives were like. I mean, yeah. Kusama's like institutionalized. Right, right. And maybe if she'd gotten some support, she wouldn't be in an institution. Right. You know, I feel right. like, I mean, if they were rich, like Florine Stedheimer, they could do what they wanted. But for a lot of these women, it was really, really tough. Yeah. They really struggled and they were always trying to get recognition. You know, that's why I think they became as embittered as they were. Now I understand it better, you know, because I'm 65 and a dealer just recently told me, oh, well, you have 30 more years. And like, how, do, how does she know I'm going to live like right. 95? And that's when you're really going to, that's when oh. people will really be interested in your work. Wow. And I'm like, excuse me, I'm 65 years old. You're 40. Right. Um, that's nice for you to say. Exactly. exactly. <laughs> I'm working for how many years? Yeah, I've been yeah. working I mean, since I was a child, basically, but certainly yeah. been showing since I was in my 20s. Right. So I've already got 40 years of behind me. I've got a Guggenheim. You know, I've had 22 solo shows, but I'm still not recognized. Oh, and no, I'm not, because nobody's you need to ever be heard on death's door. We, we need to wait until you're <laughs> no, actually No, I mean, I feel on. like they're waiting until I get into the wheelchair. <laughs> oh, they can go. I see these women, you know, like Howard Dina, who I knew and we published... Yeah. Emma, who I knew mm -hmm. when they were really in their prime. Yeah. These were beautiful, incredible, oh, yeah. smart, brilliant women yeah. who did not right. get the recognition wow. at the time when it would have at been. At the time. They did go down in history. I know that, I mean. No, they're, they're now they're in the, the Brooklyn Museum. Right. But I just feel like I never even saw that early work of Emma's. Um, yeah. And I knew her. Yeah. I saw her retrospective at the Studio Museum in Harlem. But yeah. I just feel yeah, like hard work that was in that show either before. No, nobody's I never yeah, even no. and I knew her. Yeah. And that work was never shown. Wow. Her really, really early work. Yeah. And I think it's fantastic. It is. I feel that this kind of thing is really tragic. I mean, I don't want to seem like sour grapes or something, no, no. but I, mean, really. I just try to get a longer perspective on art history and, yeah. and and these sort of rediscovered people. Well, like, there's this way in which, and this has really been critiqued, I've noticed, you know, in the, the way that they get written about often, like like as a discovery, and she's so old, or even like Carmen Herrera, you know? No, well, the funny thing is that they made her wait for her show so they could do the Frank Sedol show first, wow. you know, and she was 100 at that time. Wow. And, uh, and Mira and I are going, so are they going to give her the show before she dies or what? You know, right. shouldn't they do her show first? Because right. she's 100 and she's never had a show. Right. <laughs> you know? well, I remember hearing that Alice Neal got her big show at the Whitney while she was still alive, only because her son said to the guy who right. was... You know, she's a real good like, oh, case. Well, we'll show her. We'll show her. And the son said, you know what? She doesn't have forever. Do it now. Right. Like, well, he, he had to be pushed. 
that Why this do you is think, happening. What is, what is this fetishization that's happening of oh, old women artists that are like super, super elderly? What is that? I don't know. Mira could tell you more. She has a lot of theories. But <laughs> my feeling is that, um, you know, they just like us when we're like, you know, not sexy and not, okay. you know, not, not threatening. threatening, like neutered, basically. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, they, don't, they want us when we're like past our prime. I mean, can't object to anything, right. really, because... Right. I, I, it's hard for me to see those yeah. things happening, right. and it certainly doesn't create a great example of where I want to be. Like I want to be waiting for this, like until I'm really, really sick. You know, well, it makes you feel like you've got to like take your health like as like this. Like I've got to since I have to live for another thirty or forty years, I better go to the gym and <laughs> no, actually, eat, like, that's kind of a joke among my little coterie of, of women <laughs> artists. Like we yourself. have to really not drink, not smoke. We have to <laughs> exercise. We have to be really careful. With the health. So you got to try to make it to that retrospective at right. age 100. Uh, it, it's a joke, but it's actually like a serious. Yeah, yeah, it people, is. No. People of my age actually have, you know, because a number of our friends have recently been kind pretty ill and then a few have died and you just think oh my god right they didn't make it you know <laughs> they're, right. they're not still around to be appreciating whatever's going on. ask you a little something just about your friendship with Mira Shore because <laughs> I feel like I always see these shows um, you know these blockbuster museum shows about the friendships between male artists and how it affected their work and you know and you, you never see that you might see the influence of one artist on another a man and a woman a show like that but you don't see big blockbuster shows about for example and we should the friendship between Susan B. and Mira Shore yeah. and the ways in which there was cross-pollination between your work and how your projects influenced your right. work. Right. I was just talking to somebody about that because in Chicago, we once did a little retrospective in 2003, a duel, and we did it together. And, you know, there's a parallel thing going on between the two of us. I mean, we met at age nine or so, so we really go back a long way. My father was a designer. Her father was an illustrator, and they worked together. So I think it was fate. Yes, definitely. <laughs> and I'm not a big believer in that kind of hocus-pocus stuff, but it did seem to be if it faded that we would end up together. But we've never really collaborated artistically. We've mm -hmm. I mean, meaning was an art project, I would say, but we've never really... I mean, I've collaborated with all sorts of different people, but not really with her in terms mm -hmm. of like doing a painting together. Right. But it's more intellectual mm. and artistic and vision, and we... Right. We talk and we go to things. She's become close to all of the poets. You know, yeah, it's, it's, that's great. It's a community. Yeah, it's not just the two of you. It's it's in. Context. Oh no, no. I mean, yeah. the meeting was all about a community. Yeah, right. I mean, it's always been about getting a larger group together. Right. right. I mean, the two of us can easily just talk to each other for hours, and we have lots to say to each other, and we like can finish each other's sentences. She knew my daughter who died. Yeah. I mean, we've got a lot of deaths in the family on both right. sides, and we were at each other's, you know, all the funerals for all those people. Wow. She was there. I mean, yeah. my father was at her father's funeral, for wow. instance. Wow. I found when after he died, I found the um, program to her father's funeral. 
And so those things are very meaningful because we both come out of out of Eastern Europe and out of the Holocaust. And there aren't that many family. She has no family, really. I'm like her family, basically. You know, and that group of Eastern European artists, Jewish refugees like Chaim Gross and my father, my parents, that was a family in a way because those people were all coming from a place where everybody was killed. Right. So it's a pretty deep thing. Yeah, yeah. It's really, and we understand each other because you almost have to be part of that group to understand that group. Right, that makes sense. Um, And it's a group of people who have kind of a tragic background Mm -hmm. and know what that is about. And if you don't come from that background, you might see it from a distance. Sure, but it's not the same. But it's not the same. And, And in a way, we kind of understand each other sort of like sisters. We don't have exactly the same taste, but yeah. almost exactly the same taste. I don't think she's always approved of everything I've done in my work either. And I don't know that I've always approved of everything she's done, but I just accept it. <laughs> you know? yeah. Do you know the poet Ron Silliman? Sure. Yeah, so he was like more of a West Coast Yeah, but he lives in Philadelphia, near Philadelphia. Now he lives, okay. He's one of my collectors. Oh, is he? Oh, okay. Well, I'm going to read an excerpt from a very long poem called... Well, he only writes long poems. Yeah, but just so people know, it's taken out of context, which might annoy some people. Oh, no, he'll love that. But I don't care. It's called What? The Flower Sermon from 1988. Bin of loose sneakers in front of a shoe shop. Dreams prod you with their skewed pertinence, like fingering around in your pocket for a nickel, an ambiguous coin with your gloves on. The pom-pom girl is sucking on a kiwi as the sun rises, little startled bird, carved into nice pink slices. Art history is served on seaweed-wrapped balls of rice. So that, I feel like, not only does it give people an idea of the way that language poets sort of put things together, put words together, but also I just, when I read that, I thought your paintings too are like these sort of almost random snippets. Ron, when I was in the that period where nobody would show my work in the early 80s, he came to my studio and he really yeah. loved the work and yeah. like he was one of the people that encouraged me. Yeah. And I remember him actually coming into my studio as he used to be on Amsterdam Avenue because I lived on the Upper West Side. And he said, well, these paintings are just like the poems I'm writing. Like wow. he saw the collage. At, at some points I was even collaging in yeah. wow. actual figures. I, use, I was using paper dolls and all sorts of things, collaging okay. them in. But he, he instantly saw that these were like the poems that were being written at that time that he was writing, for instance. Wow. Yeah. So It's there really was a, interesting to me that a visual language could, in a way parallel well i was doing a lot of work with words. you know working with poets doing these books susan howe yeah. charles uh, johanna drucker mm-hmm. um jerry rothenberg all of those people i've worked with and i've kind of done um a parallel it's not really illustration but it's um collaborating with them in terms of Uh, looking at their poem and seeing how I can respond visually. It was very clear to the poets around the language group that what we were, I was doing in particular, and some of the filmmakers that we were associating with, the dancers, were all 
they were all part of the picture of mm -hmm. what the language group was doing at wow. the time because oh. we also had, there were a lot of people doing different types of work. Right. Like Carol Lee was actually associated. Um, she was part of that group too. And the, there were all these experimental filmmakers, Stan Brackage, all this, a lot of Abigail Child and Henry Hills that were part of our group too. So they were also doing stuff that was involving collage and cut-ups and pieces of films. Mm -hmm. Like they would take a lot of pieces from a lot of mm -hmm. different films and string them together. Um, so there was this sense that collage was a very important thing at the time. I know that it's not like a commercial thing, but to me the support of that, yeah. those groups, yeah. is like more important. Yeah. This episode of Magic Praxis was mixed by John Bender, who also does our music. Sign up for future episodes on iTunes or at magicpraxis.com. Thanks for listening and see you next time. Mm -hmm.